John 19, 1 through 16. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, <laughs> Hail, King of the Jews! And struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man! When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die, because he had made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the stone pavement, and an Adamatic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of the preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king! They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. The word of the Lord. Have you ever thought about what it means to be a human being? That's a really broad question. Let's make it a little bit more personal. Have you ever thought about what it means for you to be a human being? In other words, have you ever thought about what you are supposed to be? Do you ever wonder, do I have a destiny? Do I have a purpose? Is there something that I was made for, something that I was born for? For instance, Beto O'Rourke just entered the Democratic primary race, and he said, man, I was just born to be in it. And that's a pretty self-confident statement, but all the same, it points to something deep in every human being. We all wonder, is there something that I was made for, something that I was born for? 
Um, we all feel that way. Do you ever feel that way yourself, that there's some um, calling, some mission, some purpose, some destiny, some adventure, some road that's beckoning to you saying, come, follow the path laid out for you from the foundation of time. Do you ever feel like that? What is that? Where does it come from? Is it real? Um, is there really something that you were born for? Or is it just like this cosmic joke that the universe is playing on us? You know, ha ha, gotcha, sucker. At first glance, this passage that we just read, it might seem like the last place in the Bible that has anything to say to that question. But when we really understand what it's saying, it shows us answers to that question that are far deeper than we could possibly imagine. In the weeks leading up to Easter, we're looking at the events leading up to and including the crucifixion of Jesus. And we're asking the question, why did Jesus die and why does it matter? Especially when we ask this question, what am I supposed to be? This passage has profound things to show us about that, and I want to look at it under three headings. This passage shows us, um, uh, first, Jesus shows us something about ourselves. Secondly, it shows us what we do to ourselves. And lastly, it shows us what Jesus does about it. So we see what Jesus shows us about ourselves, what we do to ourselves, and what Jesus does about it. So first, this passage is showing us what Jesus shows us about ourselves. So to bring us into the story, the religious leaders have brought Jesus to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, and they've um, um, brought him to have Jesus executed because Jesus claimed to be God, and that's blasphemy. But they also know that Pilate, the Roman politician, he could care less about that. So they, um, they charged Jesus with being a political revolutionary, uh, someone who claimed to be the king of the Jews, in other words, someone who made themselves a rival king to Rome, and that's something Pilate can't ignore. Now, here's the thing. No one in this passage believes that Jesus is God, and no one in this passage believes that Jesus is really a king. It, they think that he's just a man, but this passage is just dripping with irony because the reality is Jesus is all three. He's God, which means that he's also the king of the whole universe, but he's also a man. And we see all of that in verse 5. When the soldiers are done mocking Jesus, Pilate brings Jesus out in front of the crowd with this crown of thorns and this purple robe. He displays Jesus for the mockery of the whole crowd, and then he says in some of the most infamous words of all time, Behold the man. Now, Pilate is speaking far better than he knows. Pilate is, is unknowingly saying something much deeper and much greater than he could possibly be aware of. But John, the gospel writer, he wants us to understand. So in order to understand what's going on here, we have to go back to the very beginning of the gospel of John. At the beginning of John's gospel, he says, in the beginning. Now, do those words sound familiar? They're supposed to. John is very intentionally evoking the very first words of the very first book of the Bible. That's Genesis, which says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So all through chapter 1, you see God creating the world and then filling it with his creatures. The stars in the sky, the fish in the sea, the 
land, uh, the animals on the land. But then the climax of that whole chapter is what? It's the grand entrance of humanity. It says that God created humanity in his image. Male and female, he created them in his image. Now that phrase, in his image, is incredibly important. In the ancient world, um, kings ruled over vast empires, and there was no way that they could be physically present over every last little square inch of their empire. So what these kings would do is they would set up life-size statues of themselves um, throughout their empire so that people could see the image of the king who ruled the land. When God put human beings in this world, that's what he was doing God did not just put statues of himself in this world. He put human beings created in his image because human beings were intended to be representatives of God in this world, to serve God in this world. Little mini kings, little mini queens with servant crowns that God bestowed upon them. God bestowed every human being with a glory and a dignity and a majesty, but it's a majesty of service. That's what we're supposed to be. That's what we were created to be. So in, in Genesis, that's what God called human beings to be. He put them in the garden as his representatives to serve him in this world and even said, have dominion. Now, that's not the kind of dominion we would think because we would think very negatively. God is not talking about a dominion of oppression or domination or domineering. When God says have dominion to human beings, he's saying, I want you to care for the world. I want you to serve it, love it, nurture it. Be good to this world. It's a benevolent dominion. That's what God called every human being to be. Human beings are supposed to be God's representatives on this earth. Now, if you're familiar with the rest of the story, you know that went really wrong. And we'll get back to that in just a moment. But for now, here's what we need to see. When the Gospel of John begins by saying, in the beginning, he's tapping into the creation story. He says, in the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But because humanity failed to represent God faithfully as his image bearers in this world, John says that God sent another human representative. So the climax of the beginning of John is another grand entrance, the grand entrance of another representative of God's rule in this world because John says, and the word became flesh. That means God became a human being in Jesus God sent another representative, a perfect representative, to be his image bearer, his faithful image bearer in this world. So when Pilate says, behold the man, um, that word man is the Greek word anthropos. We get our word anthropology from there. Literally, that word means human being. Pilate, unknowingly, but, but very um, impactfully, is saying, behold, humanity as it was really meant to be. When you look at Jesus, that's what you see. Behold, Pilate is saying, true humanity, ultimate humanity. Behold, perfect humanity. That's what Pilate is saying here. So um, here's the first point, and it's really very simple. When you behold Jesus Christ, you're beholding a vision of what you were meant to be. When we ask that question, what's a human supposed to be? What am I supposed to be? Look at Jesus. There's the answer. Behold the anthropos. That's 
Jesus, and he's giving us a true anthropology, a right anthropology. And before we move on, let me just apply this very briefly. You know, every single thing we do in this world is based on answers that we have to certain questions. And one of the big questions every human being has to answer is, um, what kind of beings are human beings? The way you answer that question is your anthropology. And everybody has an anthropology because everybody has an answer to that question. So everything we do in this world, the, the politics we choose, the economic systems we choose, which are big questions right now, the, um, the ways that we use things like science or medicine or technology or education, all of those things, all of the decisions we make about those things are based on our anthropology, based on the way we answer the question, what's good for people? What's a human being supposed to be? Now, in our culture... Um, here's the question. Which anthropology is guiding the way you live? Because it would be easy to say, well, I believe that God created human beings, but a lot of times it's really easy to say we believe one thing, but the way we believe is actually lining up with some other vision of humanity. So for instance, in our culture, and we talk about this a lot here, we say one of our most common sayings in our culture is everyone should be free to live however they want, as long as they don't harm someone else. You realize that is a very different anthropology. Now, everybody in our culture, including Christians, we would look at that, and most of us would probably not even question that. We would just say, duh, everybody should be free to live however they want. But that is a very different anthropology that says you, are not, you don't live according to some purpose that God created for you. No, 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 no. You live according to a purpose that you create for yourself. You think about that for a few minutes and you realize, wait a minute. If God created me with a specific purpose in mind, then I cannot just live however I want without doing incredible harm, not just to myself, but probably to a lot of other people. And that leads to our next point. We've just seen what Jesus shows us about ourselves. Jesus is the true, perfect representative, human representative of God on earth. He's the perfect representative of God, which means he's the perfect servant of all of God's purposes in this world. When you look at Jesus, you see a picture of what you're meant to be. But secondly, this passage shows us what we do to ourselves. Because, as I just mentioned a bit ago, this passage is dripping with irony. Here's Jesus, okay, the perfect human being, but what kind of condition is he in? He's just been flogged, so he's bleeding profusely. He's been brutally beaten by a whole cohort of Roman soldiers, so his face is probably unrecognizable. And he's dressed up like a mock king with this crown of thorns and a purple robe. So here's God, um, the perfect representative of God in this world. Jesus is God in the flesh. He's the king of the whole universe. And one of the main things this passage is showing us is that when God shows up, this is what we do to him. We're hostile to God. We reject God's kingship over our lives. Now, some of you may say, wait a minute, that sounds pretty extreme. I don't do that. Oh, yes, we do. And here's how. You know, as I just mentioned um, when Pilate says, behold the man, he's unknowingly presenting Jesus as the perfect human representative of God in this world. As I was studying this week, one of the interesting things is every single commentator points that out. 
that, that Pilate is presenting Jesus unknowingly as the perfect human representative of God in this world. But there were a couple of commentators who pointed out something else, and I think they're right. That, that Jesus is not only God's representative, he's also our representative. Because throughout the Bible, who's Jesus? He's a mediator. A mediator is someone who represents God to the people, but also someone who represents the people to God. That's what Jesus is. He's not just God's representative. He's our representative. That means that this picture of Jesus, bloody, beaten, and brutalized, wearing this mock crown of thorns, it's not just a picture of what we do to God. It's a picture of what we do to ourselves, or rather, what sin does to us. That every single one of us, in our rebellion against God, we're all um, twisting ourselves into mock little kings and queens because we're basically saying to God, I don't want to be your servant king or your servant queen. I want to be king or queen of myself. So for instance, going back to Genesis, we see in Genesis that God put the first human beings in the garden to be his, his human representatives in the garden, but instead of serving God, they wanted to be God. That was the lie that the serpent told them, you shall be like God, and they believed it. So that when those first humans grabbed for the fruit of the tree, it was also a grab for the throne of God. Or if you read the prophet Isaiah, over and over again, God says, um, I am, we just did a whole sermon series on that. He says, I am, and there is no one beside me. But then as you get to Isaiah chapter 47, um, it's talking about Babylon, and Babylon is a picture of humanity in rebellion against God. And here's what Babylon says, I will be queen forever. I am, and there is no one beside me. Anytime we say, I want to be free to live however I want. Anytime we say, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. In other words, all of the stuff that our culture would say is the definition of what it means to be an authentic, liberated human being. All of that stuff, if we say that, what we're really doing is, is we're twisting ourselves into mock little kings and queens. Because we're essentially saying to God, I don't want you to rule over me. I want to rule over myself. We're twisting ourselves. We're twisting a crown for ourselves. But it's not... A, a, a crown of glory, it's a crown of thorns because we're not just twisting a crown, we're twisting ourselves, we're twisting our souls. Friends, that's what the Bible calls sin. That every time we reject God's rule over our life, every time we reject God as king over our lives, we're twisting a crown. That's, that's what sin is. Now, in our culture, we reject the doctrine of sin. We say, well, it's just too negative. It's, it's an assault on the dignity of human beings. No, it's not. Not when you really understand what the doctrine of sin is all about because sin, properly understood, does not define human beings. Sin distorts human beings. And there's a big difference between those two things. I always um, think about those glorious houses um, that have fallen into ruin throughout our city. Whenever you look at one of those houses, do you say, what an awful house? No. You say, what a tragedy that this house has fallen into ruin because even in its ruin, you can still see the glory for which it was created. Recognizing the ruin is an affirmation of the dignity of those houses. 
Friends, recognizing our ruin is the same thing. It's not demeaning, it's dignifying. I love the way C.S. Lewis explains this. He said, the better stuff a creature is made of, the cleverer and stronger and freer it is, then the better it will be if it goes right, but the worse it will be if it goes wrong. A cow, he said, cannot be very good or bad. A dog can be both better and worse. A child, better and worse still. An ordinary man, still more so. A man of genius, still more so. A superhuman spirit, best or worst of all. I mean, it's brilliant when you think about what he's saying. For instance, have you ever seen a really bad cow? (laughs) You're walking by a pasture and you just see one cow terrorizing all the other cows tipping them over while they're asleep, (laughs) throwing cow pies at them. Of course not. You will never see a really bad cow because cows weren't created to be all that much to begin with. But think about human beings. What would a Hitler or a Stalin have been if they had gone right? Or what would an Abraham Lincoln or a Martin Luther King have been if they had gone wrong? Friends, Far from, from um, being a, an assault on the dignity of human beings, the doctrine of sin is in reality a jaw-dropping affirmation of the glorious vision God has for humanity and the awesome responsibility that he's given every single one of us either to embrace that vision or to reject it. When you really understand the doctrine of sin, that's what's going on. So our culture says, you know, we've gotten away from this idea of sin because we say, well, it's just too negative. Instead, we, we have something, um, we've adopted a therapeutic model. When we look at what's wrong with human beings, we think of it in therapeutic terms now. Philip Reef was one of the greatest sociologists of the 20th century. Um, he called it the triumph of the therapeutic. I love that phrase, but what does it mean? In our culture, we say that sin and guilt are not objectively real. It's a neurosis, or it's a pathology, or it's maybe a hangover from primitive superstitious religion, but it's purely subjective. It has no basis in objective reality. It's certainly not showing us anything about our moral obligations to God and our failure to live up to those obligations. No. Our culture says that that sin and feelings of guilt and all that stuff, you don't need forgiveness. You need therapy. You need self-affirmation. You need to get back in touch with your inner self, with your true self. Don't you realize That if we do that, what we're really doing, all that does is push us further into ourselves, further into our vision for our lives, and further away from God's vision for our lives. Now, by the way, I'm not saying that counseling isn't a really helpful thing. It is. But here's the tragedy of sin. Yes, we're all sinners, but we're also all of us sinned against. So many of you have experienced tremendous trauma and abuse at the hands of other people, the hands of this world, the hands of society. But the tragedy of of this is that that kind of pain, most of the time it drives us further into ourselves. It makes you more self-absorbed, 
more self-centered and more blind to the selfish, self-centered, sinful ways we respond to the pain of the things that have happened to us. Friends, if we're not willing to embrace the reality, to recognize the ruin of the sin in our lives, if we're not willing to walk through that stuff, in other words, if we try to walk around it, push it away, um, refuse to, to look at what it's really showing us. In other words, if sin and guilt are just purely subjective symptoms of some trauma that happened to you in your life, then our therapeutic culture says, let's alleviate the symptoms. Let's get rid of those guilt feelings because they're not real anyway. Let's get you back in touch with your true self. If we do that, what we're really doing, all we're doing is rearranging the furniture in a house that remains ruined. And we will never find the renewal that we seek because we will not be taking responsibility for the renewal and the ruin of our lives. And by the way, that's what good counseling can help you to do. That's what we need to do. Friends, whose vision for your life do you really want? Is it God's vision or is it your vision? If we're really being honest with ourselves, we want our vision every single time. No contest. We're twisting crowns for ourselves. That's what we do. But in our greed and our avarice to rule over our own lives, what we're really doing is twisting ourselves further and further away from God's vision of what he created us to be. Our vision for our lives, don't you realize, it's so small. What is your vision for your life? What do we think greatness is in this world? What is it, a brilliant career? Or wealth and riches? Or... Um, the adulation of the masses or, um, you know, the corner office or a title or getting the right letters behind your name. Even if we realize how superficial all of that stuff is, even if we say, well, I, I just want to be a really good moral person or be a really spiritual person, or even if we just want to, you know, live like we don't care what other people think, are you still just living that way because you want to feel good about yourself? It's still a self-created vision. It's still focused on self. Any self-created vision for our lives is always twisting us away from what God created us for. It's twi twisting us away from God's vision for your life. We're all twisting crowns for ourselves. We're all twisting ourselves, our souls, further and further away from what God intended us to be. And that leads to our last point. Because here's the truth that we need to see. The truth this passage is showing us and the truth that we all need to embrace if we're really going to find renewal and become the persons that we were supposed to be. And the truth is simply this, that the road to renewal begins with taking responsibility for your ruin. The road to renewal begins with taking responsibility for your ruin. And that leads to our last point. We've seen what Jesus shows us about ourselves, the glory and the majesty that we were all created for. But it also shows us what we do to ourselves, that we're all twisting crowns, twisting ourselves further away from God's vision for our lives. But lastly, we need to see, what does Jesus do about it? What does Jesus do about this? Because here's the question. If the road to renewal begins with taking responsibility for your ruin, and it does, then how does that renewal happen? Here's how. When Pilate brings Jesus back inside the headquarters... You see, in verse 9, he asks Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. 
So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Jesus is telling Pilate, you're not the one in control here. I am. In other words, nothing here is happening by accident. Jesus is not some helpless victim of a a tragic turn of events that could have and should have gone very differently. Jesus is the one in control here. He's saying, Pilate, the whole reason I came to earth was to die on a cross. This is not an accident, and you are not in control. From the foundation of time, this has always been my plan. Yes, the road to renewal begins with taking responsibility for your ruin, but how does it happen? That It doesn't happen by us, you know, deciding that we're going to live better lives or become better people. It doesn't happen with us. You know, the gospel is not exchanging one set of behaviors for another. The gospel is not adopting a new moral system. If we do that, to go back to our metaphor, all we're doing is rearranging the furniture in the house when it's the whole house is what needs to be renewed. We don't have the power to do that. But God, in his authority, in his initiative, in his power, he does have the power to do it, not us. So so when we say the road to renewal begins with taking responsibility for your ruin, how how does it end? By receiving redemption from the hands of Jesus. The road to renewal begins with taking responsibility for your ruin, but it ends by receiving redemption from the hands of Jesus. I love the way Tim Keller always says this, that great uh, preacher in New York City. He says that salvation is not something we achieve, it's something we receive by grace. Because look at our condition here. What what is the, the truth about our condition in this world? Again, one more time, this passage is just dripping with irony. Look at verse 7. The crowd tells Pilate, there's a law And according to that law, Jesus ought to die because he made himself out to be the son of God. The reality is that Jesus really is the son of God. The irony is that in invoking that law, we're condemning ourselves because we all make ourselves out to be God. Twisting crowns, twisting our souls. We're all traitors, cosmic traitors, and every traitor's life is forfeit. C.S. Lewis once called that deep magic from the dawn of time. We just call it justice. But Jesus, in his love, in his grace, and in his power, Jesus invokes what Lewis called deeper magic from the dawn of time, which says that whenever a willing victim who has committed no treachery is killed in a traitor's stead, then the table of judgment is broken and death itself starts to work backward renewal. Because Jesus is our representative. Jesus is our representative, not just a representative on earth, but our representative on the cross. We make ourselves out to be God, but Jesus in his grace, he's our representative. He's the true man, the second Adam, the glory of God in human flesh, who came to earth and went to a cross in order to take our ruin upon himself so that he could bring his renewal into our lives. On the cross, Jesus Christ became what we are in our sin so that we could become what he is in his glory. 
Friends, we all make ourselves out to be God. And as a result, we all deserve to die. We all are subject to the law. We're all subject to the deep magic. We all deserve to die because we've all exchanged the glory of God for created things. We all exchanged that servant crown that God bestowed upon humanity in the garden in order to take up an autonomous crown of thorns that we twist for ourselves. We've exchanged the the humble dependency of nakedness before God in order to to have the the shame of all of our fig leaves of success and self-promotion. We exchanged the commendation of God for the condemnation of our own despairing consciences. But on the cross, Jesus Christ exchanged a crown of glory for a crown of thorns. He exchanged a robe of splendor for a mantle of mockery. Jesus Christ exchanged the praise of all creation for human fists of hatred. He Jesus Christ descended to the throne of heaven so that he could ascend the cross and so fulfill the words that he spoke, when I am lifted up, I will draw all humanity to myself. Friends, whose vision do you really want to live? What vision are you really going to live for? What vision is really going to um, take over your life? Whose vision are you really living for? The road to renewal means taking responsibility for our ruin, but it ends by receiving redemption from the hands of God. Redemption from the hands of Jesus. That, what does that look like? What does that glorious life look, for, look like? What is the greatness that God has for you? It's certainly not the greatness that we imagine for ourselves. It's not the corner office. It's not the wealth and the riches. It's not um, having the right letters behind our name. It's not even the satisfaction of of thinking that we're really good people. None of that matters. Even if God were to bring all of that stuff in your life, when real renewal comes in your life, none of that stuff matters. Because you no longer get your worth and your value from who you are or what you do. You get it from who Jesus is and what he's done for you. That's real renewal. So that, yes, that is going to completely transform every single area of your life. But you know what? If it's really happened, you'll probably be the last person to notice it. Because becoming the self that you were really meant to be means becoming somebody who's not even looking at themselves anymore. You're looking at him. Behold, the anthropos beholds Jesus. You're looking at him, and the more you look at him, the more you become like him. What does that look like? Do you know what that does for you? Do you know what that does to you? Let me give you one more from C.S. Lewis. He wrote a wonderful little fantasy book once called The Great Divorce. It's a, a story about a busload of people who take um, from hell, who take a tour of heaven. And when they get there, the author meets a tour guide. And at one point during his tour of heaven, they see a glorious woman uh, walking down, and she's surrounded by a whole ocean of people that are dancing and singing in honor of her. It's so amazing that at one point the author says, only partly do I remember the, the unbearable beauty of her face. And so he turns to his tour guide, and he says, is it, is it? And the tour guide says, no. It's no one you will ever heard of. On earth, her name was Sarah Smith, and she lived in Golders Green. But you will have heard that um, fame in that country, fame in this country, heaven, and fame on earth are two quite different things. 
Because the author says, well, she seems to be a person of particular importance. And the guide says, yes, she's one of the great ones. <laughs> but fame, on, fame in this country and fame on earth are two different things. Um, so he says, well, she must have had a very large family because he sees all the people surrounding her. And the guide says, every boy that ever met her became her son, even if it was only the boy that brought the meat to her back door. Every girl that met her was her daughter, but her motherhood was of a different kind. Those on whom it fell went back to their natural parents, loving them more. In her, they became themselves. And now the abundance of life she has in Christ from the Father flows over into them. For there is joy enough in the little finger of a great saint, such as yonder lady, to awaken all the dead things of the universe into life. You might be just a Sarah Smith in this world, just a nobody in this world. But if you take responsibility for your ruin and receive God's vision for what he created you to be through the redemption that Jesus offers you on his cross, then there is a, a, a glory and a beauty and a greatness that will come into your life that is infinitely beyond anything this world could possibly offer you. Behold the man. Behold Jesus the true humanity. He's not just God's representative on earth. He's your representative on the cross. Behold Jesus. The more you behold him, the more you become like him. There's the renewal you're really looking for. There's the person you're meant to be. Let's pray.